Father, I ask for your blessing in wisdom today, in understanding, and in uh, clarity of explanation. We ask that you would be instructing the hearts of your people who've gathered to hear you. We pray, Father, that we would understand a man who lived long ago, who was just a man, but in your hands, Father, he was a remarkable example. We ask, Father, that in a different way in our day and our time, we might equal him in some respect, that you would give us that privilege, that honor, that opportunity. We would have a heart to serve in the way he did, a heart to obey, a heart, Father, to show mercy and kindness to others, that our study of this man would not simply be for the sake of knowing something, but for the sake of being someone who would please you. Let our study tonight, Father, have that effect as we move through this book and do so according to your will and by your Spirit's guidance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the story of David as king of Israel, we are about to enter into, historically, a golden era for David. Everything is new. Everything is exciting. Everything is full of promise as David now ascends to the throne and as the nation of Israel is united under his leadership. Last week, in our study of this chapter, this part of the the book, you saw David finally accepted as the king of Israel by all the tribes. He is now true and rightful heir of the throne. And after seven years of struggling to get to this point, after he has succeeded in winning over all the tribes and putting aside all the uh, apparent opposition to his rule, he's now ready to consolidate power and to move out and make changes. The writer is now going to introduce those changes, and he does so in an interesting way within the narrative of Second Samuel. We get a few chapters of what are really overview. They're, they're moments along the path. They're early in the, the walk of this man as king, but they are also snippets. They're a way of summarizing the effect of this man's ascending to to the throne over the nation of Israel. So we start that here in chapter five. In verse six, I'll show you what I mean as we go through it a little bit this week. Open up there. And here you have David now ready to set his sights on a new home, a new place where the throne of Israel will reside. Verse six. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David... You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, through the water tunnel. And therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built all around the millow and inward. David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. All right, we have some pictures tonight uh, to help understand some of the action and place names and so on. Uh, Let's start with a little history. So during Saul's reign, the capital of Israel was located in a place called called Gilbeah. Gilbeah, as we'll see in a little while, is just north in the region of Benjamin, and that made sense because Benjamin was Saul's tribal affiliation. But David, not being from the tribe of Benjamin, obviously, but being from the tribe of Judah, it only makes sense that this king's gonna move his seat of power into the tribe that he's familiar with, that, that his people come from. And so he's gonna pick a city within Judah. Now, Judah's a fairly large area, so there's a lot of options when it comes to what city should be his headquarters. But David wisely chooses a city that sits literally on the border between Benjamin and Judah. And in so doing, he works to ease the transition out of Benjamite leadership into Judite leadership. And of course, we know what that city is. It was called Jabus in the time that David takes it, later known as Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be his capital and the home of his throne and dynasty. Now, the name Jerusalem means the foundations of peace. And the border of Benjamin and Judah makes this perfect dissection of the city. This graph, this this particular map I'm using comes from a source that does not show the division quite as accurately, but close enough. So here's Benjamin right here. If you can see around my head, Judah, the larger section behind. Let's go a little deeper and just sort of a zoom in. 
And Judah, Benjamin, here's the line, and Jerusalem sits literally right on it. This one seems to show it bending down, but truthfully, it's right between it. In fact, the line between Benjamin and Judah cuts right through the holy place in the temple. So it sits directly on the border. And Gilbea, which had been the capital, sits slightly north of that in the heart of Benjamin. So this is a smart move on David's part, politically speaking. Uh, More importantly, though, it gave David a chance to make a statement to his subjects, to the nation of Israel, concerning his perspective on Israel's longtime enemies, the Jebusites in this case, because the Jebusites hold this city, the city of Jebus. And in verse 7 of what I read, we're told that David is going to invade this stronghold called the stronghold of Zion in this case. He's going to defeat the Jebusites. He's going to take the city, and after that, it'll be called the city of David. And that's all we get in this text. We don't get a lot of detail on how this battle goes, on how he wins it. Going back to what I said earlier, the writer is giving us more of a summary of how David moves into position and consolidates power, but we do have some details elsewhere. In 1 Chronicles 11, and you can either flip there for a second or just listen, but in 1 Chronicles 11.4, we read this, very similar. Then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jabus, and the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. The inhabitants of Jabus said to David, you shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David had said, whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first, so he became chief. Then David dwelt in the stronghold thereafter it was called the city of David. Well, we don't get too much more there. But when you put 2 Samuel 5, 1 Chronicles 11 together, you end up with a little better understanding of how the battle took place. And then if you add a little bit of history and geography from what we know of this area, you, you get a much better sense. And that's what I'm going to try to help you do here, starting with, as I said, some pictures. Now, this is a rendering of what, is, of what Jerusalem probably looked like at the time that David is going to conquer it. This is the Jebusite city of Jebus. This town was originally settled long before even the Jebusites had it, on a slope of a mountain that the Bible calls Mount Zion. So it's on the eastern slope of Mount Zion. In David's day, the city was in the possession of the Jebusites. They had been there for about 515 years before this point in time. That goes all the way back to before Joshua. And the Jebusites themselves descended from one of the sons of Canaan, who was a grandson of Noah. And the son of Canaan, Jebus, Jebus, was the one who came after the flood, settled this area, and then named the city after himself. And in David's day, it was still called Jebus. And before that time, this area had already been settled, and that had gone by a name of Salem. So in this area, you had Salem or Jebus when he renamed it after himself. Salem means peace, you may know that. So at this point in time, this town, archaeologists estimate, held about 2,500 people. Uh, If you've been to Israel and you know the city of David as they map it out today, we'll show you that more in a minute. It's not a big area. So there's a lot of people crammed into a small area in this little space. When Joshua came into the land, brought the Israelites in from across the Jordan, he told the Benjamites who have this region at that time, that they are to defeat the Jebusites and take the city, but they refused to do it. Years later under the judges, the tribe of Judah, which now had possession of it at that time, was given the same order again and did not do it. So now David's day, the Jebusites have been holding on to this place for centuries. And because of where it's situated, it is very hard to defeat, almost impenetrable. You have these steep valleys on either side And let's give some more context here to the geography so that you can understand what takes place when David attacks it. To the west of the city, you have Mount Zion. Uh, Over time, this city came to be called the stronghold of Zion because of where it sat next to the mountain of Zion. To the north of it is another peak called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is well known to the Jews as the location that Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed. In Jewish lore, it's also the place where Adam was created. That's not a biblical reference, but it's an interesting story the Jews keep to to this day. To the east stood a mountain range called the Mount of Olives. And between Mount Zion 
and Mount Moriah is a valley created by those two mountains sitting next to each other. That valley is the Tyropian Valley. And to the right made by the, the right side valley made by Mount Moriah and the Mount of Olives is the Kidron. Today, the Tyropian is also called the Central Valley. Uh, you may have heard it called that. All right, so the city, notice where it's built now. It's built between valleys that are quite steep. The drawing doesn't necessarily reflect that, but it is quite steep. Uh, and it's nestled up against three mountains on three sides. So it is not an easy place to attack. You have to ford a mountain and then go down and into a valley, which makes you a target, and then you have to try to climb up a mountain into a, mount, into a wall without being uh, shot by arrows or spears on the way up. Very hard to attack the city, which is why it has stood unconquered for 515 years plus, all right? But it had one vulnerability. The only freshwater supply in this entire region was the Spring of Gihon. And the Spring of Gihon came out of one side of the Kidron Valley, off of the eastern side of the Mount Moriah foothills. And the spring emerges below the, the level of the city. And so to secure that important resource, the Jebusites built the city wall down the side of the Kidron Valley, as you see there, and encompassed the spring in that wall. And then they put that tower, as you see, right at the end so they could guard it, watchtower that overlooked it. So the Jebusites had control over the source, at least they could protect it, but the problem was if you wanted to draw water from the spring, you had to come outside the main walls and down into that little area that was protected, and that made you vulnerable. From the sides and from above, people could be attacked as they went to draw water. So the Jebusites tunneled a shaft underground about... Well, we'll talk more about how its length in a minute, but it, they, they tunneled straight down through the rock to the point of the source of that spring, which allowed residents in the city, through buckets or other means, to draw water up from the, the spring from inside the city without having to go outside the city to get to it. So they had the, the watchtower to protect the source, and you had people who could safely draw water from inside the city. That was the situation David faced as he had to attack this city. And... As we read in, in 2 Samuel, he decides that the way to go into the city is through the water tunnel, through the source that he knows is bringing water up into the city. In verse 6, David brings his fighting men to the walls of Jebus, and he informs the Jebusites, I guess by yelling over the wall, that he's going to conquer them. Now keep in mind, this city has been unconquered for five centuries. And so the Jebusites had seen army after army come against them in one form or another, threatening to defeat them. Each time, the, the city walls held, and so you would naturally expect them to be a little cocky. And so they shout down from the walls to David and to his men saying, you're not gonna get in here. And then they say, moreover, we're gonna defend our city with the blind and the lame that we have in here. That's how effectively we'll be able to defend this city. It's an embarrassing rebuke, obviously. Reminds me of the Monty Python's moment in the Holy Grail, right? Uh, anyway, David is also very uninspiring, very unimpressive in his attack because he has a small force at this point. David does not have a large standing army ready to battle uh, for this city. And so they look at David and they say to themselves, he can't enter here. Why is David confident that he can? Well, his confidence in this situation, I think, is evidence of something Jesus says in the Gospels. In Matthew 17, 20, he says this, because of the littleness of your faith, you, do not, you cannot do what you're saying. He says, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible for you. All right, now when, when he says that, he's talking about what the Lord's will is and us moving with courage and confidence in his will. That is, if you know what God is prepared to do, be it move a mountain even, you can confidently, courageously express your affirmation of that plan, your confidence in what God has told you he will do. You can be, that's faith. Faith has an object. Faith is not in yourself. It has to be in an object, right? The faith is in the knowledge of what God plans to do and faith in his uh, reliability, his faithfulness to keep his word. So if God were to reveal to you, I'm gonna move a mountain, check this out, you could confidently say, that mountain is gonna move, because your faith is not in the mountain or in yourself, but in what God has told you is gonna happen. That's what Jesus is talking about. And it's not wishful thinking. It's not arrogance. It's confidence in God. 
And that allows you, that is, knowing and living in the will of God allows you to take bold action that others would see as impossible. All right? Obviously, some have twisted this concept and put a man-centered view on it and said that whatever we propose we want to do, if we believe in that desire enough, we can make anything happen. That is faith in yourself, which is worthless because you don't have the power to move a mountain. But God does, and he will do as his will prefers, and when his will has been revealed to you, you can be in that move with him, and you can be confident it's gonna happen. David, I would submit, is confident that he will take this city despite the odds because God has assured him of such outcome, that this is, in fact, God's will. And we know historically, certainly it was, that Israel, and particularly Jerusalem, would be at the center of God's plan. And so he has apparently heard God's heart on the matter. Being a man after God's own heart, he is confident and goes up. So perhaps he understood that this city was to be his because of its importance to God from you know, the stories of Melchizedek, king of Salem. Or, and remember, the order of Melchizedek runs through David's line on the way to Jesus, who is the last and final holder of the position of Melchizedek. Or perhaps it's because of the significance of Mount Moriah, which stood nearby and his memory, of course, of what that meant for Isaac and the picture of the Messiah in that sacrifice and so on. Whatever the reason, he was confident that the Lord intended to give him this city and it would become his capital. When you know what God is going to do, you can engage in that work confidently. And when it comes to pass, your faithful anticipation of that outcome is a testimony of God's faithfulness to you because you have seen done what he said would happen. I like to think of it this way. You're just a billboard. When you walk and live in God's will and you make that known to others, you are a billboard for God. You accomplish that by prayer. As you pray for things that you know God is willing to do, your prayer becomes an an announcement in advance of what God is planning to do. We say, God heard me and did as I asked. What the scriptures would tell you is, God revealed to you what his will was to do and he moved your heart in prayer so that you could confidently announce in advance God's purpose. In any event, you have Jabez's record of impenetrability and David's confidence in the Lord's will. So David is not the least bit dissuaded about moving ahead against this city and when the occupants taunt him, it just gives him added motivation. So in verse eight, David adopts the term lame and blind, which was their taunt, for his own purpose by using it to refer to all of the occupants of the city. Don't get into your mind, David is somehow threatening to go kill the weakest in the city. He's, he's calling the whole city lame and blind. And he tells his men, when we defeat this city, we're gonna kill all of them, and they're lame and blind, will be outside the city, and we're gonna get there, he says, through the water tunnel. Now, according to First Chronicles 11, which we read just a moment earlier, David also offers a reward to the first man who makes his way into the city and kills a Jebusite. The reward for that man will be, you will be the commander of my army, uh, David says. Now, Joab, remember this guy? just a week or so ago. Joab was the man that David spared earlier after he killed Abner. And now I think he sees this as his chance to win back David's trust. I mean, David didn't kill him. That doesn't mean David likes him. Here's his opportunity. And so he enters the city via the water tunnel to initiate the battle. Once the city then is taken, we are told it becomes known as the city of David, the stronghold of Zion. And David lives there his whole reign. He builds a palace on the northern end of the city, which is just below Mount Moriah. And to uh, protect his palace, we're told he also builds a terraced wall down the side of the Kidron Valley. It's very unique, it's very prominent. And it was so prominent it was named the Millow. And we don't know what the word means. It's literally a transliteration of the Hebrew word. We're not sure what its definition is. It's just become known as, it's it's been defined as terrace, but that's just because of the, that's actually an interpretation, not a translation. We just know what it's referring to. And the feature is called out, you see it here called out in scripture, it's called out in other places as well, because it's so unique. And I can show you what that looked like because recent excavations of the city of David have helped us learn a little more about what was going on and how it must have happened. In 1867, Here's where the millow is, by the way, against the side of the upper end of the city where David built his palace. So in 1867, Sir Charles Warren was excavating near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and he discovered a shaft in the rock, in the bedrock. 
he measured it 230 feet through the rock. And on one end, it connects the spring of Gihon in the Kidron Valley with, at the other end, a settlement at that time, living up on the hillside, the present day hillside of, of southern Jerusalem there, just outside the Temple Mount area, but historically that was the city of David. So in other words, he found the shaft that we believe was the shaft the Jebusites were using to draw water up from the spring into the city. And it's become known as Warren's shaft ever since. Now, we don't know how, here's the thing, we don't know how David got access to that shaft because it started underground where the spring is and it ended up in the city. The assumption is he dug underground from somewhere outside the walls of the city and met up with this shaft at some point and then they start climbing up the shaft. They would have climbed up those narrow walls probably by pressing their body against both sides and then just shimmying up the side of this thing 230 feet straight up. That would have been arduous. It would have been risky. At any moment, someone drops a bucket down for water, they discover you're in the shaft. Which is why I think David had to offer such a generous reward for the first guy willing to go do this. And Joab said, I'll try. And he made it work. Now in verse nine, we're told David lived in Jerusalem and built it up and refortified it and so on. Now today, and this is where I'll show you some of the modern pictures and then we'll move on, but I find it interesting just to see how things change over history. So going back to this photo, so this looks just a little longer in time. This is more like what David would have seen. It's hard to make out some of the detail, but it's all the same position. But if you look inside that little area that we call the city of David, it's, you'll notice there's some new structures near the top of it. This is where David would have built his palace, just underneath the threshing floor that later becomes the site of the temple. And if we move forward one step in time, this is modern Jerusalem. And the wall is still there to show you where it would have been. It's not there today. If you look at the city today with no wall, this is what it looks like. But all those pieces still kind of line up to where they should be. Uh, You see how the city's expanded all around it. You see the Temple Mount, the walls of, of the old city of Jerusalem, which were built originally by Hezekiah. Uh, but in the walls you see they were actually built by the Ottomans uh, about a thousand, a little over a thousand years ago. But in the meantime, you see all the parts are still there. Now if you see where the Millo is, as the nation of Israel has been excavating all over their nation for the purpose of tourism, they've been focusing very hard on the city of David because they understand its significance. And uh, next week I'm gonna bring you some artifacts that, I, that have actually come out of that area that I've taken back from Israel, legally. Uh, but, <laughs> I have to qualify that. Uh, but tonight I want to focus on the Milo. If you take a look at this from, looking from east to west, there's the, the profile, the Kidron Valley you see dropping away there, and there is the Milo. You see that terrace? That is the terrace built by David, and they've exposed it entirely. All the rock is original, so you can go when, when I do, by the way, little little uh, advertising here, when we do our annual trip to Israel next May, God willing, we will, part of the tour is we walk through that whole area into the city of David. You'll be standing right next to that millow and looking at it and we actually go, th- we see the Warren shaft. You don't go through it, thankfully, but you do go through Hezekiah's tunnel which uh, obviously is another tunnel built hundreds of years later but in the same area. So all of this is, is, is coming to light now and of course in the excavation of all this you, you prove not only that David existed which seems unnecessary but yet it is for many, Uh, But you also prove the biblical record is accurate with regard to these events. All right, David's conquest of the city gave rise to a saying. It says, Israel says now that the blind and lame do not enter the house. And the term blind and lame in that context becomes a euphemism for the ungodly Gentiles, like the Jebusites in that case. And house, of course, is a reference to the temple of the Lord located in Jerusalem ever since. So this phrase is simply a way of Jews saying the ungodly Gentiles will not enter the temple. That as David arrived and pushed out the Gentiles, God's city and temple will forever be for the Jews. Now that is not an accurate statement from how we now understand God's plan, but from a Jewish point of view, it makes perfect sense. And David uh, set the tone for that. He established that for God in the nation and it's been that way at least in the, in the sense of how Israel's history went, it's ever been the case that Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish world, even if they weren't always there. All right, and then we see in verse 10, from this place David grows greater and greater because the Lord is with him in that place. This becomes a bit of a 
thematic statement, a, a, a hypothesis, if you will, for the writer. At this point, he's gonna spend the next several chapters proving that statement, that God was with David, making him greater and greater. And this is that golden era of the book of 2 Samuel. For the next several chapters, David just seems to rock and roll. Everything is going splendidly for him. And his rise to power, even going back to the beginning of his life, is nothing if not a testimony to God's faithfulness and his mercy to David. I mean, he was the youngest shepherd boy in a nothing family. And from there, he ends up being a commander of the forces of the king of Israel. From there, he's selected to be king. And uh, you know, over a period of time, through testing in the desert and otherwise, he becomes more mature, more powerful as a leader, more sought after, more respected. And eventually, all his adversaries die off. He doesn't, do have, to, he doesn't have to lift a finger to become king. It just gets thrown into his lap at the end of all of that. And now he's defeating the city that stood undefeated for 500 plus years, and he is about to enter into a period of unprecedented growth and expansion of the kingdom. Remarkable. You know, this rise to wealth and power and security. You can only explain that for a guy like David, as the writer did here. God was with David. But as you think about that statement and as you know about his life, you think about some of the moments he had that were not a fairy tale. We're not a bed of roses, right? He was tested in the desert, running from Saul for a decade. And he was often in tough situations, and he was often lamenting his situations. I mean, it's almost easier at the end of a story to just gloss over the low points. But you know how it is, right? Uh, If you think back to terrible moments in your life in the past, you know, you can tell us the whole story of how God got you through it. Oh, amen. But if I caught you in the middle of that moment, you weren't so positive, you weren't so praising of God, I assure you. You know, if it's a bad situation, we're all going through the, the trenches together in the same way. Woe is me, and where's God, and this is horrible, and I don't know how I'm getting through tomorrow, and you know, we're, we're on the verge of falling apart. And you know, David was not much different. And you only have to, do, to, to find that out by reading the Psalms. Uh, and there's plenty to choose from. Let me just read four verses out of Psalm 6. Oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. You ever feel like that? God's mad at you? Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. My soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. Anyone, one of us could pray that prayer probably many times in, in the course of a life. So when you hear about David's rise to prominence and his power and his greatness, as the writer talks about here, don't forget all the, the years of lowness and sadness and even humiliation. And remember that God declared from the beginning that David would be king, and yet David was taken through all those experiences by God's sovereign will, which means God was always with David and for David, though he let David experience some pretty tough moments, moments that even caused David to wonder if God was still with him or for him. Now you have him sitting on a throne in a city by his name, presiding over a prosperous people, and In that context, the writer says, God is with him. And if you're not careful, you hear that and you say, well, self-evidently, God is with him. That's not what he means. He means he's there because God was with him. It's not he is with me now because everything is so hunky-dory. It's the outcome that proves that in the low points, he was with me. And David got that because that same psalm I just read, the last half goes like this. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. Amen's there. My eye has wasted away with grief and has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. I don't think that's wishful thinking. I think that's a man who has come through the depths like we all do, but never doubted that at some point God's gonna fix this because he said, I'm gonna be king. That's what Paul means when he describes the outlook of every believer in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? You know, when Paul wrote that, and as he's asking you to take that as a, as a verse in your own life, as you, as you think about how God wanted you to apply that, he was not saying you would say that when you're at the high point. No one ever quotes that verse, by the way, when life is hunky-dory, right? We're not thinking about that problem. We're thinking about God is faithful, God is good, praise God. But then when, when life is terrible, well, who could be against us if God is for us? 
It's a plea. And God is talk, uh, Paul is talking here not about the fact that you'll never have problems. He's talking about the fact that those valleys, as we sometimes call them, are places God takes us in the preparation that we need to get to the place he said he's gonna take us. It's all part of the same plan. We always say, where is God? Why is not God fixing this? Why doesn't God care? Paul says, in that moment, you shouldn't be saying that. You should be saying, I know God's for me, so obviously no one is against me right now. These are not a problem because God is not helping, God is not caring, God is not listening, or because he's, you know, there's no such thing. This is what it means that God is for you. This is what it means. It means sometimes he lets you have some circumstances that you need to get better at what he wants you to do. That is God being for you. No different than a parent who gives their child everything they want and never asks them to be accountable to any rules. What kind of kid does that create? God's a better parent than you are. He knows that too, that too. so his, his style, his attitude is I'm always for you, don't measure it by your circumstances. So why do we worry over our circumstances when we know God is using them for good purpose? I think it's just because, like David, we're arguing our case before God, not because we don't trust him necessarily or we don't have faith in him, it's because we lack time and perspective. We, we don't understand the timing, we don't know where he's going, we kinda wish it would hurry up, and we don't understand how, the, in the meantime, the bad circumstances play a, a productive role in what he wants. But I'll tell you what, time will tell. In time, those answers come, in my experience. And in the meantime, you bide your time knowing God is with you. He is for you. And who can stand against us if God is for us? You know, David lived a life that reflected a level of dependence and trust in God. That's something we talk here a lot about. We will continue to. He was very much a demand dependent on God, trusting in God, and he didn't always know God's plan. And yet he always knew God's intentions, and that's the key. You may not always know what God is planning to do in your life or through a a certain set of circumstances, but you always know God's intentions. And his intentions are to bring good out of that set of circumstances. That should be enough reason to be patient, knowing the character of God and his intentions. All right, then in verse 11, we move on now to one of those summaries I talked about. This really opens up the next section. The writer showing us how David as king prospered and how the nation prospered with him, and we'll get through several things tonight. Let's look at chapter five, verse 11. It says, then Haram king of Tyre sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shabab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nephig, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Elephelet. All available if you need a kid to be named anytime soon. All right, Nathan, yeah, everyone says Nathan, sure, all right. What we're following here in this chapter and in the next few chapters is the writer's proof of his opening statement in verse 10 that God was with David and that's why David prospered. So in effect, verse 10 is the topic sentence and here's the essay that follows. And it's gonna go into three sections, how David prospered personally, how he prospered militarily, and how he prospered in a religious sense or in religious accomplishments on behalf of the nation. And he goes between them. It's not all in one section each time. Starting here, though, David's family blessings are enumerated, that he gets a home, a very rich home, very fine home, best materials available, built by others who do it all for him for free. Tyre was a a very wealthy trading uh, city right on the Phoenician coast to present-day Lebanon, Uh, and the finest goods in all the world flowed east and west through Tyre. So they had their pick. And the king of Tyre offers David a house, and I think probably as a gesture of peace and goodwill, he wants to coexist with David, probably wants to trade with Israel. Uh, Later, however, that relationship between Israel and Tyre that starts to get going here becomes a corrupting influence on the kings of the north, which is kind of a vivid example of two biblical principles. One of those is bad company corrupts good morals. This is one of those bad company situations for for Israel. And then secondly, no godly person should choose to be unequally yoked. And in this case, you have David, in a sense, yoking himself to Uh, pagans in the form of the Tyrians. All right, beyond his home, that's one blessing, obviously, but beyond his home, he's growing his household. And this, too, he does through an unwise compromise. 
He takes additional wives and concubines, which are slave wives. Ultimately, he gets a harem and a large family of uh, children as a result. Uh, As we addressed in an earlier lesson, the uh, Bible is explicit on the fact that additional wives is not the idea that God has for marriage and that when you see it being uh, included in the scriptures here, that is when it says David took additional wives, the Bible is being descriptive, not prescriptive. We are reading a description of what David did. We are not reading a prescription of what God would have us do, much less David. And it is a safe assumption that David's habit of taking additional wives when it pleased him was largely responsible for what ultimately becomes his most serious sin with Bathsheba. Uh, And because of that sin in David's life, uh, he suffered greatly. So in other words, the sin of David taking on additional wives casually in the way that he did made him accustomed to having other women whenever it pleased him and even to the point of arranging, as you know, for the, the murder of Uriah and then the, the taking of Bathsheba, which we will study. As one man once said, the man who's broken down the fence will wander endlessly. That's essentially how David has decided to live his life and it is obviously one of his chief weaknesses. I should also add, by the way, if somebody, and I've heard, believe it or not, people are out there trying to make this argument, but if someone were to argue today that David's example or Jacob's example or anyone's example allows Christians to take multiple wives, I would just remind them that polygamy is against our laws and the Bible commands us to obey governing authorities without exception. So for that reason alone, Christians are prohibited from polygamy, never mind the fact that the Bible does not endorse it. But here's the hardest part we have to accept within this passage. Even though David was wrong to have multiple wives, God blesses the result. David's blessed, he has a large family, sons and daughters from all these wives, even though it's wrong that he used more than one wife to do it. In that sense, his situation is similar to that of Jacob. You probably remember, Jacob had four wives altogether. God used those four women to produce 12 sons, which become the tribes of Israel. And because he did it through four wives and not one, they came in much quicker succession, which allowed all 12 sons to more or less grow up together. And in that way, you have the tribes of Israel founded by men who could live side by side and, generally speaking, work together as a family when, if they had been spread out in the life of one woman, giving, never mind, she'd have to give 12 sons birth, uh, the oldest would be so much older than the youngest that they wouldn't have been able to work together in the same way. Now, does that justify what Jacob did? No. But it is also hard to see without multiple wives how Jacob would have raised 12 sons so quickly and had them work in in the way that they did. So this again is just an example that God can use evil to his advantage. He can use sin as he chooses to, but when he does, it does not become a prescription for us to engage in bad behavior. Though God has the power to cause bad things to work to good, that doesn't give us license to do as many bad things as we want assuming that God will work it out in the end. If you know the story of Jacob, there was certainly some bad stuff that came his way for having four wives. Conversely, the same thing works in in reverse. There's a corollary, if you will. God's blessings to his children do not turn on whether you are perfectly obedient or not. Think about that. How How many times have you let that creep into your thinking? God will bless me because I'm obedient. Wait a minute. Then why did he bless you at all? I mean, the prosperity that God granted David here was for God's own purposes. You notice in the, the text that I read, it says, David realized, I love the way that's put, David realized the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Great humility is available in, in that understanding. He wasn't king because he deserved it. He wasn't king because he was born with this inherent ability to lead people. He was made to be that man in all those respects because God wanted to do something for his people through a good leader in contrast to what was done through the prior leader. And David came to understand that. And it's a, it's a good example of what he does for all his children, what God does in general. That is, he blesses us even though we sin at times because if he made perfect behavior the prerequisite for blessing, you'd never have any. So blessing from God is, by definition, grace to sinful people. But that does never makes 
that can't be an endorsement for sin. That can, you, know, you can run wrong in both directions. Legalistically, you can think that it's all pay for play. If I do what God wants, he gives me something in return. Quid pro quo, I do, I get. That's not God. But neither is it the other way around where grace covers so much that he doesn't care how you live. Now, that's certainly not true either. That's licentiousness. In the middle, as often I guess is the case, you find exactly where God wants you. All right, looking at the list of sons born to David, you find 11 sons in this list, 11 more. There were six in Hebron from the earlier list. If you take the earlier list, add it to this list, the 10th son is Solomon, who ultimately succeeds David as king. Now, Solomon's mother, interestingly, is not mentioned here. Neither of the, none of the mothers are listed here, so we only know from later in the book that it's Bathsheba that is his mother. So Solomon, the future king, is birthed from the one woman that he takes most egregiously of all the women. Do I hear grace? David's ninth son, Nathan. Interestingly, both, this is not the prophet Nathan, obviously. The prophet Nathan was a contemporary of David. This is his son. But interestingly, both Nathan and Solomon are listed in the genealogies leading to Jesus in the New Testament. How do you have two sons both in the, same, in the genealogy to Jesus? Well, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was a descendant of Solomon, and Jesus' mother, Mary, was a descendant of Nathan. And of course, as you might remember, going back to the beginning of our study in Matthew, we showed how Luke was the writer interviewing Mary and putting her version down, while Matthew interviewed Joseph and put his version down. So... That's why those two respective genealogies come from those two respective points of view. Nathan and Solomon end up being uh, brothers to, uh, in this family and both leading to the line of Jesus in the, in the genealogies. All right, there'll be later sons mentioned in First Chronicles if you go look there. So these aren't even all the sons and children that David had. And of course, traditionally in scripture, women are not often you know, named, it's the men who are named, so you can imagine how large a family he had. And the effect of that was, it cements his dynasty, uh, at least in Judah, uh, and we'll learn more about that dynasty in coming chapters, but as a man has a lot of children, now his family influence in the culture is much broader. All right, meanwhile, the writer's moving on. That's his family prosperity, we come back to some of that later. Meanwhile, we're ready to look at his military success for the rest of the night. Chapter five, verse 17. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David, that the Israelites had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came to Baal Perazim, and defeated them there, and he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, he named that place Baal, Parazim. They abandoned their idols there, so David and his men carried them away. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in in the valley of Rephaim. When David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up directly. Circle around behind them and come up at them in front of the balsam trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching and the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly, for then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Then David did so, just as the Lord had commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. All right, so there's two battles here that are listed in this chapter. Now these are not the only battles David fought. And as such, then, you, you need to see them as examples or illustrations of how David fought, how David relied on the Lord, how David was, was with, you know, the Lord was with David, as we've already said. First of these, both against the Philistines, obviously, uh, David is fighting these, these people for two big reasons. First, as a matter of economic necessity and uh, national pride, you know, every world superpower that there's ever been uh, has been born on battlefields of one kind or another. And David's military success was key to Israel becoming a superpower. In fact, Israel is among the very first that you could use that term for. The only nation I think historically got there sooner was Egypt. But after Egypt, this is David's rise to superpower and Solomon completes it. Victory in battle is the basis for a nation reaching that level of power because it establishes peace in the land, you beat your enemies, you have peace, and peace is the foundation for economic prosperity. 
Because, especially in that time, in an agrarian society, when land is at war with another land, you have to divert men and resources from agricultural work, from growing things that you need to eat and you know, products you need to, to sell, etc., to fighting battles, and many of them don't come back. That lowers wealth for everyone. When the land's at peace, people, resources, all of that goes invested into the development of land, which returns a harvest. That development eventually leads to prosperity for everyone. And so his military success is more than just a bravado, an act of bravado. It's, it's about setting the stage for tremendous economic growth, which also then leads to population growth, which then also leads to the expansion of the tribes, which then leads to taking over more land, which gives more opportunity for harvest, and it just starts to magnify, to multiply more prosperity on top of itself. And it becomes a hedge against natural problems, like, for example, if a drought hits some region, you have other regions now producing crops and moving that produce to where the people need it. It it becomes a security against those sorts of concerns as well. Fight the Philistines, kick them out of the land once and for all, finally, you stabilize your economy, you drive out competition, you allow for expansion, you allow for prosperity. And David's relentless pursuit of his enemies under these circumstances is ultimately about him establishing prosperity for his people. It had a secondary purpose, though, a secondary benefit. It was cathartic. You have a nation here that has been struggling against Philistines for a long time. And the Philistines were a warring people. They, they came initially from Greece, but they had settled on the coastlines. And then they would make these intrusions up the Shephelah, up the foothills that lead into the mountain ranges that are central to the nation of Israel. They run north-south, these mountain ranges in Israel. And the foothills are, are you know, stretch out and then eventually become plains that when they get to the sea, it's just flat farmland. The Philistines had that farmland in cities, Ashdod and Ashkelon and several you know, other city-states, but then they would make raids up the foothills into the area of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and they would disrupt crops, they would kill people, they'd disrupt cities. This was a non-stop intrusion for centuries. That made economic development hard. You couldn't expand. You, couldn't tr- you always were worried about somebody invading, and so it was a constant wear on the mentality, on the, on the psyche of Israel. And Saul had tried to defeat the Philistines. He had some early success, and then it all went, you know, you know where? Because Saul was not a man following after God. And so after decades under Saul with Jewish lives lost and seeing defeat after defeat, David shows up, and he starts, you know, taking names, as they say. He starts going through the hillside, beating everybody, and the Philistines are pushed way, way back. That is a huge boost for national pride and national identity, not something seen since Joshua's time. And notice how the writer explains David's success each time with these two battles. He always emphasizes David asked the Lord what to do. Now, we don't exactly know how these exchanges took place. I mean, whether it was just prayer and David got a sense, like we would, or did he use the high priest's divining stones in the ephod and ask the questions as you know that works? Either way, I think it's probably through prayer, but either way, he learned from his years spent in the desert how he can depend on God, get answers, and then know what to do. He's a man who knew that God hears and answers prayers, and he went and took full advantage of that. And that itself was a stark departure from what Saul had done. Saul rarely, if ever, consulted with God before battle, and in fact, at the end of his life, he was asking witches what he should do. All right, so let's look at the two battles quickly. In both battles... God not only approves of the engagement, yes, go up, I will beat them, but in the case of the second one, he gives David tactical plans on exactly how to go do it. Um, This first battle is actually retold later in chapter 23. Uh, If you watch on this slide, it's gonna animate a little, I don't know if you can see the little line drawing, but uh, there it goes. So David, sorry, comes up from the south, the blue line in Hebron, makes the city his home, and then the red line's coming in from the west, that's the two intrusions of the Philistines up from the foothills, up from the Shephelah to try to defeat David. They assume a new king who's just come into power is vulnerable, and if they take him by surprise early in his reign, they can put an end to him. And David goes out, as God promises in the first battle, beats them, and then you see those little red lines where it shows them scattering. Maybe that's them pushing them all the way back out. In the case of the second battle, you see the blue line runs all the way up and and back over to Gezer, which is one of the Uh, strongholds of the Philistines. He chases them all the way home, pushes them well out of the land is the point. 
And in that second battle, David's even told how. Go in from the rear, wait till I tell you, you'll hear a signal, go out, I'll be ahead of you. Look, you can't lose when you have that kind of air support, right? God is taking care of every detail. You just gotta go, right? Not about ability, it's about availability. Just show up. And God wins the battle. Now, those two battles are highlighted here because they were important to establishing the city of Jerusalem as a Jewish stronghold. They were probably... um, the most remarkable defeats that David engineers, obviously God did it, but that David uh, prosecutes in his whole time as king. Why? Because they came when David had the fewest resources. This is at the earliest stages of his kingdom. So if he was ever vulnerable, it was then. And he beats two forces that Saul, with all the army of Israel, had never been able to defeat, not fully. It shows what happens when David has the Lord's favor. So based on David's military success, Having trusted in the Lord, having taken his counsel, the people, the land, everyone is safe, everyone is prosperous, and now we get to a very interesting story. We'll introduce it tonight, we'll finish it next week. But this is that third category. We talked about his personal prosperity, we talked about now his military prosperity. We come back to these themes again. The third, though, is how he establishes religious prosperity in the nation of Israel. And it doesn't start as well as the first two. Chapter six, verse one. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baalai Judah, or it's really Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. All right, you may know this story. If you you know 1 Samuel, you'll know a little bit about what's going on here, but Now that the peace is assured, David sets his sights on a new project. He wants to bring the Ark of the Lord to its proper place. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what the Ark of the Lord is, if you've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's that scene at the end. The box on the poles, right? All right, that burns the bad guys up at the end. Uh, It's the place, it's the the artifact, the piece of furniture that was in the Holy of Holies in in the most sacred area of the tabernacle that held the Ten Commandments and Aaron's budding rod and so on. This, the jar of manna, this is the ark on which sat the mercy seat where the high priest would sprinkle blood once a year on the Day of Atonement and so on, all right? That's where the, the Shekinah glory of God would appear when it was in the tabernacle, right on top of the box, if you will, right in that space under the angel's wings. That ark is not with the tabernacle when David comes to power. It is in a place called Kiriath Yerim, also known as Baal Judah in this text. Interestingly, Baal Judah means master of Judah and it's a reference to Baal worship. So the ark of the Lord has been sitting in a town named or known as the center of pagan worship in Judah. The center of Canaan worship in Judah. All right, now David says we're gonna move it from that place to where it needs to be, which is in Jerusalem. So here's what David's doing. He's moving the center of worship, of Yahweh worship, to Jerusalem. So now the ark is gonna move from the center of pagan worship to the center of Jewish Yahweh worship, from one town to the next. That's his goal. And to understand why it's moving, you have to understand how it got here. This is a simple moment of history. 20 years earlier, it had been in Shiloh where the tabernacle was, which is a town north of Jerusalem. And Saul, in one of his crazier fits, thought that he, he knew the history of this thing. This, God had asked Israel at times to take the ark in front of them into battle and it became a symbolic way of God showing he was gonna support and defend and uh, vindicate his people in battle. But Saul, of course, did what anyone who is, um, who is entertaining ungodliness in their life, he turned something authentic and meaningful into something iconic and ritualistic and superstitious. So he saw the ark itself as having superstitious power, not God working through it. And so he thought, I can just take this box anywhere I want and it'll win me any battle I want to fight. So he rashly pulls it out of Shiloh and takes it into battle against the Philistines and God lets the Philistines win and take the ark back to Philistia. So for a time, it just circulated amongst the Philistine cities causing mayhem and severe discomfort Everywhere it went. If you don't know the story, it's worth going back to 1 Samuel 6 and learning it. Um, Eventually it comes back to uh, Israel because after the Philistines decide, you know, this thing's a pain in the rear. We don't want this thing around anymore. (laughs) It ends up at a place called 
Bet Shemesh. That's an inside joke if anybody doesn't understand why I use that rough reference. Um, it comes back, they end up putting it on a cart driven by oxen, let it go back on its own into the area of Judah, into a place called Bet Shemesh. You can visit Bet Shemesh today, it's a ruin. And the, the men of Bet Shemesh violate the word of God by opening the ark when it comes to them and looking inside, which no man may do. And the Lord responds by killing 50,000 Jews on that day. After that slaughter, Israel is so afraid of the ark that they send it to a small remote mountain village in Judah called Kiriath Urim. And it stays in the home of a man named Abinadad for 20 years and he and his son take care of it. I, I, I would love to have been there when they knocked on the door. <laughs> we have something for you right out here. <laughs> it's just a weird thing, it is literally what happened. Obviously it should not be in Abinadad's home. And David is determined to return it to the tabernacle. The fact that the ark has been away for 20 years would tell you something else about the state of the people that God has now given over to David's rule. They have not been following the law's requirements very closely. Because without an ark in the tabernacle, the priests could not perform uh, certain sacrificial responsibilities properly. The presence of the Lord was not in the tabernacle. And for that matter, given the fact that Saul was in power all that time, it's logical to assume the whole mosaic system fell out of fashion. So this move on David's part is not merely about bringing an artifact home, it's about reestablishing worship in the nation of Israel. The return of the ark to the tabernacle is in a sense the return of the mosaic system to Israel. And that system is now gonna be centered in the city of Jerusalem and it will stay here forevermore. This is now the one and last resting place, if you will, for, this, uh, for the center of worship. He's consolidating his seat of political power and now making it also the place of religious authority in the land of Israel. And unlike Saul, he isn't working to return the ark on the basis of superstition. He wants to defend the honor in the name of the Lord. You notice that in the text in verse two, he talks about the ark being called by the, God, the name of God, the very name of God. This is about honoring God. And that is something David wants to do. He wants to ensure God is honored. And so you can clearly see he wants to do the right thing. But as this chapter plays out, he does it in the wrong way. And doing the right thing in the wrong way is not God's way. And so the events of this chapter serve as a bit of a counter-argument of sorts to the previous chapter in that it shows David still has some things to learn. But we're gonna, because of time, we won't get into as much as I wanted. But let me just t start it. It'll be a bit of a teaser for next week and we'll come back into the heart of the story when we get back. Verse three. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fur and wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. So David tells the man, let's load this ark on a cart. Let's pull it with some oxen, we assume. And let's do this to honor God. And as part of that, he makes sure it's a brand new cart, consecrated to God. This is something like Jesus got on a, on a brand new donkey for the same reason. You, when something was gonna be dedicated to holy purpose, it was never allowed to be used for common purpose. So you had to start with something fresh, new, virgin. And in this case, the uh, cart is a brand new cart, had the new cart smell. And David, he, he chooses that, obviously, because he wants to honor God. This, you see his heart even in the little details, right? And... Uh, at the same time, as you see him doing this, he is ignoring the word of God. And specifically, he is ignoring the law, which stipulates in numbers how an ark is to be moved. The law requires only priests move it, and they have to do it on foot, and they have to hold it using poles stuck through rings on the side of the box, right? And either out of ignorance or disobedience uh, or neglect, David chose to move the ark on an ox cart. Now, I wonder where he got that idea. I can give you two reasons. One, it's certainly a lot easier uh, if you see the territory where this is. So here's Jerusalem. Here's where the ark was, up here in the rugged hills of a little town just west of Jerusalem. And the, t the terrain there is very difficult. You're not gonna walk that terrain very easily. Uh, and they have a nine-mile walk with a heavy ark. So... Uh, it's a lot easier to put that thing on a cart and have an ox drive at nine miles than to have a bunch of guys holding it with a pole, right? And I can even hear David's men telling him, oh, you know, that, that pole method, that's, that's 
out of fashion. No one does poles anymore. Everybody does oxen now. It's all carts, carts, carts now. And then the second reason is precedent. The Philistines used a cart to bring the ark back years earlier. And of course, the Philistines were not Jewish. They were, they were Gentile. They didn't know the law of God. And had David consulted the law of God, he would have known that God expected it to be done differently. In fact, if anyone had known the law of God, they could have informed David, hey David, not the way we do this, and he could have known better, and I assume a man after God's heart would have done it. Which tells you that my answer to this then is knowing his heart, that he must not have known. There must have been a general ignorance of the law in that day. And this is a problem going back generations. After the time of Joshua, generations rose up after that that did not know or care or follow the law of God. And that led everyone in Israel to do what was right in their own eyes, the famous subtext to the book of Judges. And after generations of wandering away from the law of God, you get a moment or two, like times when Samuel tried to bring everyone back to obedience, but you know, even if he succeeded for a time, it was temporary. And then you get Saul's leadership and the people just revert to disobedience and disinterest because they're following a guy who had no interest either. So by David's time, the nation is morally bankrupt. And even David himself is not a man who apparently is schooled in the word of God. And he has a heart for God. And he has a desire to honor God. And he has a pattern of seeking after God. And so you might look at him under these circumstances and say, well, gee, this is a guy who deserves a pass, right? God knows his heart. God knows he's trying. You know, good intentions should count right now. That is a classic problem in the life of any follower of God, any believer who is not well acquainted or attentive to the word of God. Out of ignorance, you will mix good intentions with bad methods, and that leads to sin and consequences. And when consequences come, what you might do under those circumstances is blame God for not honoring your good intentions. Meanwhile, God is in heaven blaming you for not honoring his word. Guess who wins that argument? Meanwhile, you have David here, and I want to end on this. You have David heavily relying on prayer. I mean, we see that now repeatedly. He's a man with godly intuition, and he makes decisions based on what he thinks is right for God. And those are things we should do. We're not throwing out what David does in, you know, in anything we go do. We honor what he's doing. We think that's great, but there is more to pleasing God than having good intentions or even a robust prayer life. Jesus says this in Luke eleven twenty seven. One of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So the call of scripture is to obey the word of God. And answering that call depends on consulting what God has given you in the word. And that requires studying. And that requires remembering what you learn. And many believers resist doing that work. And it is work, right? It is so much easier to substitute your own ideas or your own intuition for study. And likewise, it is easier to expect that God will just personally tell you what to do in prayer all the time on every issue, and if you just consult him on a day-to-day basis, you never have to worry about what he wrote so long ago. That is lazy discipleship. Expecting the Lord to deliver every instruction you need just in time, when you need it, automatically right as it's coming into into focus. It assumes you don't need to study because you can just make direct appeals to God for answers. Like the student who sets aside his or her textbook in class and just expects the teacher to give them every answer when they need it. You know, or in biblical terms, the man who's going to God in prayer asking for marital help when his marriage is on the rocks rather than studying what the Bible says about marriage before he gets into trouble. That's not how relationship with God works. Yes, pray. Yes, ask God to help you with your marriage or or anything else. And yes, he will hear you. And yes, he will answer. But you know what the answer you're likely to receive is? Read my book. Just as Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. We're not supposed to replace the study of God's word with the expectation of, of personal revelation, especially on matters that are already addressed in the Bible. For example, there's never a time someone ever needs to pray whether they should have sex before marriage or not or whether they should cheat on their taxes. That is not a prayer you ever need to offer. Those answers are clearly available in the Bible already, and you are accountable to what has been given to you already. Asking God for a personal answer on those issues is simply looking for a different answer. And if you reject the answer given to you in the word of God, you're not gonna get a different one in your prayer time. That's playing games with God, and playing games or ignoring his word 
That is not an excuse when you fall into sin. Now, yeah, you're all forgiven. We're all forgiven by the blood of Christ. I'm not saying that this has eternal consequences, certainly not that one, but there are consequences. And David's story is a good one for that example. Ultimately, his sins are forgiven too, but his mistakes cost him dearly. The Lord had already told Israel how to handle this situation, and David didn't know it or listen. Now, next week when we get back here, we'll go through what comes of this situation, why it's important, how it changes David, and how it influences his future decision and and thinking as a leader of Israel's religious life. This is a nation of of ignorant, God-following people at this point, and David, their king, can't be one of them. All right, we'll get back to that next week. Thank you for your patience tonight. As always, we finish with a little time of Q&A, so I'll pray, and if you uh, care to stick around, you're welcome to, and we'll do what we can to answer your questions. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I always thank you, Father, for David. I thank you for his example. And some weeks we get to thank you, Father, for we see the model of a man who does so well and has so much wisdom and so much faith, and we long to be someone who would live like that. And we have that tonight as well, Father, in David's willingness to ask you and even details like how to fight a battle. He was a man, Father, who knew you were there with him and we're always answering his prayer. And I pray, Father, that we would have that same expectation, that our prayer life, Father, would be um, just as strong a testimony of our faith in you. And Father, we also thank you for his example of a man who had weaknesses, for it reminds us that you love us too despite our weaknesses and that we are blessed despite our inadequacies. And we are so thankful for grace which makes that possible. And Father, help us to minimize the need for it by our obedience to you and to... uh, Always remember, Father, that we have what we need in the, in the word of life, all that is sufficient for life and godliness, and that we would turn there first. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.